I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my producer, Lindsay, and we are streaming live from the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Studio. And today, you don't want to miss this episode. We have Dr. Pran on. He is all the way halfway across the world from Australia. He is a gastroenterologist, and we are going to talk about... So tell us a little bit about you. You promote the carnivore diet a lot. And I know in the American culture, we are talked about if we if we eat meat only, we need fiber, we're going to get colon cancer. So speak about the carnivore diet and your thoughts about it and your thoughts about um, about the question of fiber. Sure, Sean. Uh, I, I think um, more than the carnivory aspect or the carnivore diet aspect of it, I, I, I think people uh, have really fallen out of love with, uh, with the nutritional uh, benefits of meat. So I think rather than promoting a overly idealistic or ideological diet, um, I, I just tend to emphasize the importance of quality protein in people's diets. So I, I guess that could come across as... Uh, as me supporting a carnivore-based diet, but but I, I've noticed that these uh, diets kind of new religions, you know what I mean, and right. and uh, people take, tend to take sides and so forth. So uh, it's not that I'm out there promoting a fully meat-based diet, but but I do talk about the importance and the emphasis that needs to be placed on animal protein. It's probably the most important thing we can do. So um, in, in terms of in terms of the actual diet itself, I think it's got a lot of benefits and I think um, there's certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence that's emerging um, globally across the world and, you know, now that we're all connected by the internet and people can share all these stories. Uh, Large-scale studies, um, uh, you know, they're, they're, there's a paucity of them, but, of course, any clinical study involving nutrition is, is very difficult to, to conduct. Uh, but I think I think uh, over the last hundred years there are certainly good studies that have been done on the benefits of high protein diet, and I don't think anyone can ever uh, can ever question that a high protein diet is is beneficial for most me metabolic conditions. So, if you do have a high protein diet uh, and mostly animal protein, so how do we get fiber? And is fiber as important as we've been taught? Um, look, I think I think we're a we're a we're an extremely resourceful uh, species of ape, um, Sean. And I think over the course of our history, in the four point four million years that we've existed, uh, our journey from being from being a ancient hominid species to what, what we are now, we've had to go through multiple changes. It's been a very dynamic course. It's not been a linear progression. There's been regression, there's been leaps, and then regression again. So uh, the reality of the situation is we're, we're built to be uh, we're built to be resilient. We're built to be extremely flexible. Um, so uh, with regards to the whole fiber concept of it, what the body basically wants from fiber is, is you know, people think of fiber as, as a brush that scrubs the colon clean. It doesn't work like that. What it actually promotes is fuel for the gut. So when we eat fiber, fiber is a non-digestible carbohydrate. It cannot be broken down. There is no nutrient, in, inherent nutrient value to it. Once fiber is in the right side of the colon, the bacteria that populate the hind gut or the colon or the large bowel, as we know it, um, get to work on the fiber. And, and depending on the type of fiber, they, they liberate uh, basically ketones, basically fat. So they're utilizing fiber to generate fat. And I think that tells you all you need to know about fiber, really, that, that what the end goal is, is, is that they don't directly want the fiber. They, they directly want the fat. They just have to utilize the fiber to get there. 
Unfortunately, the byproduct of all of that is the liberation of fairly um, fairly large amounts of gas, methane, mm-hmm. hydrogen, nitrogen, and, and, and you know some people just don't tolerate these gases very well. There's significant bloating. Once you've got bloating from intestinal stretch, you've got slowing down or, or motility issues that can affect you from all the way uh, up in the up in the esophagus. So we tend to find that people that bloat tend to get reflux. Uh, and a lot of gut distress, erratic patterns of stooling. So the question that needs to be is asked is, are we optimised for fibre? And, and if you look at our evolutionary history and our hominid cousins, you'll see very quickly that our digestive tract is very different to that of, um, say, the chimpanzees or the gorillas, where they're more optimised for fibre, uh, where they've got a very, very thick hindgut, a large cecum as opposed to a smaller cecum. Um, I mean, I do colonoscopies every day and I am, Every time I put a colonoscope in, I'm very mindful of the fact that the bowel walls are only millimetres thin, you know, and a perforation is a, is a very, very common complication in colonoscopy, you know, if it, and whereas on our primate cousins, it would be very difficult to perforate their bowel because of how thick and muscular their hindgut is. That's all for fibre. Now, the trade-off for them is that there has to be a lot of blood supply to that gut because it's heavy machinery to be able to process these non-nutritious foods. So essentially, this is why our brain, um, and it relates directly back to our brain, it's called the expensive tissue hypothesis, and this is why our brain could, could expand so rapidly is that there was diversion of blood flow from, uh, from gut to brain. Uh, we spent less time dealing with tough fibrous foods we dealt with nutrient density, our gut could shrink, uh, became far more simplistic, our brain could grow. So it's a, it's a, it's a long-winded answer to your question, Sean. I think uh, fibre, whilst we can utilise it, um, it's kind of overstated in the modern world. You can understand why, because you compare the standard American or Australian diet to a high-fibre diet, which could be plant-based, whole fruit, whole fruit plant-based, and you'll see that, that the whole food plant-based diet will always come up on top of, um, will always trump the standard uh, Western diet because the standard Western diet is essentially rubbish. Correct. Now, so what, what is your thoughts about um, amount of fiber and uh, colon cancer? There's always, there seems to be, we were told that constantly. What, what are your thoughts about colon cancer and fiber? Uh, look, I, I think colon cancer, cancer in general, is a very, very complicated state of affairs. There has to be a genetic predisposition as there is to every illness. However, at the core, I think cancer is basically a metabolic illness. I think this is dysfunctional mitochondria, generation of reactive oxygen species, subsequent DNA damage, a poor cleanup, uh, and, and the cancer generated. I don't think a lack of fiber causes cancer. I think a um, Metabolic syndrome, for instance, like diabetes and obesity, strongly correlated with uh, cancer, whether that be colorectal, uterine, or, or uh, breast. Um, it's linked with every every one of those cancers. Now, why is that? Uh, because fundamentally, cancer is is a offshoot, I think, of metabolic syndrome. I think that the two are interchangeably linked. Now, we know that a high protein diet will cause you to reverse metabolic ills. Uh, people reverse diabetes and obesity with a diet that is optimized for protein or prioritized for protein. So the question that needs to be asked is how can something that makes you lose weight, improve your metabolic parameters, cause cancer? And that's fundamentally where all this argument collapses. So uh, fiber is not essential to 
to prevent colorectal cancer. However, a high fiber diet is far more beneficial than a standard Australian diet. So, or a standard Western diet. So this is why a high fiber diet will basically have a population consuming it that has a less metabolic syndrome, hence less cancer. So this, the, 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 the studies, you can't separate these nuances from them. Um, and this is where the difficulty arises. Wow, that's great. Uh, thanks for that answer. Uh, I, I, um, I've never heard it stated like that. And I, I agree with you. I think uh, cancer is a metabolic disease and um, proper nutrition is one of the ways to, to prevent that. So we talked, you talked a little bit about evolutionarily how we've changed our diets and it's changed the way we can digest things. I, I know you've talked about dairy and there's so many people that, you know, can't tolerate or are allergic to dairy. And will you talk about uh, the tribes in, you know, like the Dinka tribe in Africa, how, you know, they've lived for thousands and thousands of years on, you know, as uh, ranchers, as um, uh, on a lot of dairy. So can you, can you explain that, how our bodies can change? Yeah, we, we, we're an amazing species and nature in itself is, um, is uh, truly amazing, Sean. I think, um, I'm stunned at how resourceful nature is, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, the, and the thing is we have to understand that humanity faced a crisis um, probably 10 to 12,000 years ago. We don't quite know what it is. Um, there's a lot of talk about the Younger Dryas event, which was the comet strike over Greenland, which raised sea levels by many, many hundreds of metres, just absolute devastation globally. And, uh, you know, they, they say for 1,000 years we were plunged into a very, very difficult winter. And uh, these, I think, these sort of events might have been the precipitant for farming, okay? And um, the, the relating that to milk, now it's quite clear that we were pastoralists in Northern Europe about seven to 8,000 years ago, but we weren't consuming milk as yet. Now, what made us starting to, what made us start consuming milk? We don't know the answer to that, but again, we think it was some sort of catastrophic environmental duress. Um, so I don't think milk is a, is a particularly natural uh, source to consume. Um, you know, it's a, it's a way of uh, rapidly fattening up something helpless, which is a baby to to uh, fend for itself. Um, but in the in the absence of other nutritious food, you could see how it could be very very beneficial. Mm. Um, you know, and so there are various races around the world, Northern Europeans in particular, are quite well optimised to break down the lactase in uh, lactose in milk uh, because they have a gene mutation called lactase permanence or lactase persistence. So this is where they retain the ability to break down milk even beyond childhood, a mutation scrambled together under environmental duress. And in a, in a, in a classic, elegant way of, of convergent evolution, similar mutations occurred elsewhere in the world in Africa in the Maasai tribes and the Dinka tribe of South Sudan, uh, you, you, we started seeing these mutations as well. But again, one has to question whether consumption of milk is particularly natural. Now, if you're, if you're in South Sudan where there's an absence of, of other nutrients, milk's an extremely nutritious thing, and this is why these people remain lean, physically fit, metabolically well. However, we're now surrounded by energy um, in the Western world, and, um, and we consume a lot of energy. Um, milk is energy, 
uh, a pure and simple. It's got fat, it's got carbohydrate, and it's got protein, which also can be energy. So why do we need to consume milk in this modern environment? That's the question that needs to be fundamentally asked. Many poor people poorly tolerate it, of course. Right. So um, if we consume mostly animal protein, how are we getting our minerals and electrolytes? I think that's a common question. Do we need to worry about that? Do we need to supplement? Do we need to... You know, can we eat um, mostly animal protein and get the right amount of minerals and electrolytes? Um, yeah, this is a fascinating question, um, you know, and it's something that I've explored. Um, I, don't, I don't know the answer to this exactly, Sean. However, I'll tell you that, that, that you know, tribes like the Maasai, they consume a lot of blood, very mineral-rich. Um, they consume a lot of organ meat, very mineral-rich. Muscle meat is not as... Um, you know, it's not as heavy in minerals as, as these these um, these other animal-based products are. Henceforth, I think carrying out a diet like this, where where you're depleted in vegetables, especially green leafy vegetables, which do tend to contain minerals, however, are not optimally absorbed, but because our system's not not optimized for for um, for plant-based uh, nutrition, you'll find that. Um, that people can run into issues with mineral uh, deficiency. So I think it is important to supplement it, in particular with things like magnesium and um, and, uh, and, and so, sodium. Um, and, and you find a lot of people in these low-carbohydrate communities tend to do that pretty well. Um, I think we, we forget the importance of salt. It is a critical uh, substance to have, and I think we have to supplement it externally. So being a gastroenterologist, there's a lot of new fancy drugs on the market, some not so new, but some that, um, you know, have been around for years. Um, I'm thinking about the the PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors, the Prilosec and, and Nexium, things like that, that you can even get over the counter in the United States. Now, a lot of times those were initially indicated for reflux. So what is your opinion on a gastroenterologist about people using those long term for, for reflux? Um, it's a sad state of affairs, Sean, that we see these things as over the counter. I think it's uh, it, it really shows us where where human health is headed. Um, proton pump inhibition is inherently problematic because it doesn't deal with the fundamentals of why people get these symptoms. Now, gastroesophageal reflux, the way I see it, is not a disease of acid per se. Um, it's a disease of the inability to hold the acid within the stomach, okay? And I've made these points before on my, in my blogs and my talks, which is that the diaphragmatic muscle is critical in, in uh, controlling acid regulation and, and containing the acid within the stomachs. And I think what we've got in the modern world is a very, very dysfunctional diaphragm because of diaphragmatic sarcopenia, which is thinning of the diaphragm muscle. In addition, when one one has intestinal gas, the diaphragm's pushed forward, right? And, um, and, and so it creates a dysfunctional system. Um, you combine that with our breathing technique in the modern world, which is very shallow, small breaths um, over the course of the day. We, we simply are not utilizing the diaphragm the way it should be utilized. Obesity is a big, big risk factor for diaphragmatic dysfunction as well. So I think that diaphragmatic muscle is key in, um, in why we've got a uh, reflux epidemic. So rather than block the acid, so what we're essentially doing with the proton pump in a bit is we're, we're increasing pH by blocking the acid transporters within the stomach, which fundamentally doesn't help because you still get the regurgitation, it's just less acidic. 
So you're not asymptomatic. But what are you doing to your digestive capacity? We, by birthright, are a, a creature built for acidic-based digestion. So one has to wonder uh, what the downstream effects are now. It's not a surprise to me that um, these drugs are linked with osteoporosis. Um, and I do wonder about whether they could be linked with sarcopenia as well, which is muscle loss. I suspect they are. Because if you're unable to digest um, protein appropriately and you will be compromised in that regard if your acid levels are low well you know you're fundamentally left with a uh, protein deficiency now as we age we develop this anabolic resistance to protein which is that we are not as efficient at breaking down protein henceforth um, we we have to say that that uh, adding these proton pump inhibitors on top is a problem yeah, wow. I've never really actually thought about that. But uh, if you don't have acid, you can't dissolve proteins either, um, along with other minerals. I mean, calcium, vitamin D, uh, many nutrients that you can't dissolve. We're meant, like you say, we're meant to have acid tummies. So thank you for that. So what about IBS? I know there's a lot of fancy biotech drugs on the market now for IBS, and it seems like I see 12-year-olds that have IBS now. It seems to be the diagnosis of the day sometimes when anybody has a GI problem. So can you elaborate on IBS, what your thoughts about that are, and why it's kind of you know increasing in, in, um, with the standard American diet? So uh, this is a direct quote from a paper in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, I think published in 2000. Uh, I, I want to say it's 2016, it's one of our premier journals, and, and what they suggested was 75% of a gastroenterologist's practice is made up of IBS, and I'd agree with that because I, I have a fairly busy uh, GI practice here in Sydney, Australia. Um, in addition, um, that 75% that present with the IBS, about 95 to 99% of it is attributable to diet. I cannot, uh, I cannot understand how this can be a disease of diet of, 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 of the human body when simply this is a disease of the diet. So, if your environment is is out of keeping with your physiological adaptations, that is not a disease. That is you simply forcing into forcing foodstuffs into a digestive tract that, that is unable to deal with it. This is the concept of evolutionary mismatch that we are out of keeping with our evolutionary roots. And so IBS, I tell my patients, you know, when they I don't believe in that diagnosis. Let's sort your diet out. Let's work on your diet. Let's get you moving again. And these are all positive things for the uh, for the gut. Um, it really is a sad state of affairs that these pharmacological agents have been introduced because it really uh, adds weight to that to that concept that's that people feel or the, the the feeling that people have about modern medicine, which is that here's a crap environment and here's a drug to help you deal with it. It, it really is a backwards approach to um, restoring health and one that I detest with a passion. Good for you. I'm glad you're standing up and and realizing that people educating people to empower, be empowered to take care of their own health rather than just taking a drug to just treat symptoms. So what about Crohn's and ulcerative colitis? Is it kind of um, similar? Is it diet, is there any diet re, um, relation to Crohn's and ulcerative colitis? Yeah, again, I think all of this links back to mitochondrial dysfunction, Sean. I think, um, you know, our immune systems are less resilient now. Every subsequent generation is born with a less resilient immune system. Uh, we inherit microbiome from our, from our mothers primarily through the birth canal. 
Um, and, and now with the rising uh, rates of cesarean sections, the introduction of childhood antibiotics, multiple causes of antibiotics, it's like we not only are we inheriting a problematic microbiome from mum who's existed in a modern environment with the modern foods, which is a classic case of epigenetic phenomena, um, we're also then subjected to even more refined foods. So it really is a concerning feature now. If the microbiome is dysfunctional and it's dysfunctional through multiple reasons, as I've stated, antibiotics, poor food choices, refined food choices, and, a, and, a, and an inherited microbiome that's problematic, well, that's going to increase your risk of, uh, of um, autoimmune illnesses. Now, you combine that with this concept of intestinal permeability, which is that most modern foodstuffs, including, I believe, um, even dairy um, and a lot of these emulsifiers of food, excessive fructose, excessive sugar, ethanol, all these factors cause intestinal permeability, which then opens up your gut uh, which means that the outside world can now communicate with with um, your other organ systems where it shouldn't. So you're having a flow of bacterial toxins into the circulation. You're getting antigens, foodstuffs, lectins leaking out into the circulation, oxalates leaking out in the circulation, which is a problem. So I think the rising autoimmunity rates, not just Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, but everything, every autoimmune condition is on the rise. And that's a sorry state of affairs. So we're, we're, our immune system is so dysregulated and what used to be relatively rare conditions now are, are very, very commonly right. seen. I'll, I'll, you know, on a theatre list where I'll do 10 colonoscopies, out of those you generally will pick up at least one who's got a new diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. This is not normal. This is, uh, these are diseases that should be extremely rare and probably in the pre-agricultural era did not exist. So speaking of diseases that aren't so rare anymore, um, obesity, obesity is on the rise for sure. It's a real pandemic. And I know you are completely against, I'm not going to say completely, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you seem to be against drugs and surgery for to treat obesity. So can you elaborate on that? Well, again, it just goes back to just the practical aspect that I'm not against anything. I just see the madness in the movement. Do you know what I mean? Like if if 42% of your population in, in the United States of America and slightly less here in Australia are obese, well, does that mean that we cut out 42% of people's stomachs? Uh, does that mean that we then start them on drugs that are thousands of dollars Worth. I mean, I mean, we label it a disease, but again, we need to step back and, and, and look closely at it. why are the rates rising? Are we suddenly becoming diseased as a species or is our food environment diseased? And, um, and, and this is the fundamental question that, that they're not asking, that the experts are not asking. Every new drug that's brought onto the market is hailed as a, as a miracle drug. But the reality is the true miracle is nature. It's our body. It's our evolution. Um, we're fairly amazing and, and I don't think our body knows how to work against us. It's just the environment is so poor that, that it has no choice but to be diseased. It makes no sense to me to, to surgically rip out one's stomach or, or to put them on a drug for three years to see 10% body fat reduction. I think, I think we've got to start dealing with fundamentals and that might make me unpopular as a doctor um, amongst some of my clients, but, um, but um, I don't care, Sean. <laughs> well, you know, I, I appreciate you and, and Dr. Baker for, for speaking truth. And I know um, I 
you know, I got into debate with some people over the weekend over, you know, healthcare providers just not speaking truth. You know, type 2 diabetes is a perfect example. I did a post on type 2 diabetes and, you know, largely, let's just admit it, type 2 diabetes is largely a lifestyle issue. It is diet and exercise or not enough exercise related. It is, and um, I think as doctors or healthcare professionals, we have to be honest with patients because when we just prescribe another drug or give them another drug, um, all it does is it just keeps enabling them in some ways. And I'm not, I'm saying that in love. I'm not saying that in hate. It's not like I, 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 I hate those people. I love those people and I want them to get better. And my personal opinion is I don't think drugs are a long-term treatment for lifestyle-related diseases, just like we've been discussing, including um, diabetes and and obesity. So, and there's a list of others too. So, what are your thoughts on on that uh, with diabetes and um, long-term implications of diabetes and prescribing drugs when it's lifestyle-related, type two specifically? Um, I saw a young 36-year-old uh, lady of Middle Eastern extraction. Um, there are certainly more races that are more predisposed to the subcontinental, the Middle East. I think the Africans, the Aboriginals of Australia, uh, the African-Americans, the, these races are more predisposed to um, diabetes, just genetic factors there. But um, this lady was able to reverse her diabetes within three weeks, um, come off all her medication simply by adopting a diet that was... Um, that was appropriate um, and that's how simple that is I mean this was a 36 uh, 30 year old who was, who was destined to um, to have more drugs added on as she lost uh, glycemic control uh, but dealing with the fundamentals getting her moving again that, that's how easy it can be to reverse uh, but but the problem is the medical medical system doesn't see it that way the medical system um, in itself inherently uh, suffers uh, with with poor health you know doctors and nurses are some of the worst examples of um, of, um, uh, of of uh, people in, in you know in, in poor health uh, themselves so really we're, we're not appreciative of what what uh, optimal health is so i think we we just deal with disease and that's a sad reality of it till we get doctors understanding the importance of movement and diet i don't think we can change people's lives yeah, I, I I agree with you. Um, hope I'm glad there's a big movement. It seems to be a bigger movement out there um, with doctors like yourself, and I appreciate I appreciate you getting the word out. So, um, Dr. Pran, um, in our closing few minutes here, what what drives you? What, what do you have a passion for? Um, uh, look, Sean, uh, I just I just have a passion for knowledge, whether that relates to health or. Just the just the way we exist, nature. I'm just driven by wanting to know, and the problem with medicine is it's stop wanting to know. It's just uh, happy with status quo. I think it's happy with um, big pharma um, just bringing out new drugs every every week, every month. It's it's madness, um, and uh, you know I've got a passion for people, um, and I love people, and um, you, you know it's just sad to see our species being being um, he heading to where they're heading and sadly the momentum is against people like you and me it's uh, really with with um, how poor the environment is I think and I just really struggle to see how we we can make a change but um, every day I wake up with with motivation that 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 you know if I, even if I could change one person's life out of the many that I see in my in my practice then then, then I'm happy you know what I mean 
Yeah, absolutely. I love it. So, um, Dr. Pran, if anybody wants to uh, get a hold of you or follow you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, look, I'm on Twitter. My handle is Dr. Pran Yaganathan. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook and uh, social media. Whilst um, it's something that I've historically uh, detested, it, it, it's actually the only way to kind of kind of reach people yeah. and uh, reach the public. So I've just got to do what I've got to do. I, I'm on Instagram a fair bit. I, I find it a good medium, a visual medium, where you can post information um, and get a point across. Um, and most of it's spent, you know, poking fun at the healthcare sector. But, you know, it, uh, I think it's well-deserved. Yeah, I I agree, and I love that. And speaking of that, so uh, speaking of the healthcare system, I wrote a book about it, and it's called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. It's available on paperback and on Kindle on Amazon. Um, go there and download it, and it has a six-step solution on how to fix our healthcare system. And the great news is it starts with you. It starts with you, the patient. starts with you, the consumer. You have to be educated and empowered to control your own health. So doctors like Dr. Pran can help help you do that, but you're in charge of that, not some fancy health insurance, not some um, doctor. You're in charge. You're in charge, and you can be empowered to do that. So go read my book, and as always, listen to our podcast, uh, our midweek podcast on Thursdays, 8 to 9 a.m. this Wednesday. Kits on, on YouTube, the Mosley Professional Pharmacy YouTube site, and the and all the podcast forums. Dr. Pran, you are truly an expert in this subject. I appreciate you. I know you're a busy time. You're busy. You're a busy doctor, and I appreciate you being on to educate and empower and get the word out about how important nutrition and lifestyle is to many different diseases. Thank you so much for being on. Pleasure, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Thank we'll you. Do it again sometime. Uh huh. Please. 